Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the coronation of Mr. Thomas Shap by Lord Dunsany. This was first published in the Sketch, March first, nineteen eleven which was a weekly magazine uh, featuring lots of beautiful illustrations and uh, lots of high-class stories by high-class folks, which I think is kind of interesting considering uh, this text is about a regular dude rather than a high-class folk. Um, it mentions media in it. It mentions the uh, penny or half-penny papers. Um and uh, it's really interesting. I, I don't know how this happens, Eric, but it happens a lot. I do uh, a podcast, and then way leads on to way. And then I end up doing podcasts that are sort of related. Um, I, I, we've done Lord Dunsany before, I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so on uh, just last Sunday, I did uh, a Lovecraft story called The Silver Key, which is strangely very similar to this. And then uh, for this coming Sunday, I'm listening to the audiobook of uh, Lord Dunsany novel called The King of Elfland's Daughter. And uh, it's uh, actually quite different from this, although it is also, you know, by Lord Dunsany. And the thing that combines them all together, I guess, is the the poetic language. Um, I just love reading Dunsany's prose because it is so poetic. and so even in a story that seems pretty simple like this, um, there's a, a memorability and a, um, a real memorial memorial tone. I don't know. It's like it sticks with me. I read this last year, and, um, and then I, I think I submitted it to you as a, an idea long after I was thinking about it. Um, it is memorable. I, I have to say that I like it very much, but I may be a bad reader for it uh, because it seems to me to cry out for comparison with an other better known work. Um, Which one are you thinking? I'm thinking of The Metamorphoses. Oh, the really? It's Kafka. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, that's that's a, you know, a bit of a problem. Uh, It is, uh, you know, you're talking about Dunsany's style, the the general critical truism, which means that it's some truth in it, but not necessarily only truth uh, about Dunsany. First of all, as as I don't need to remind you, he is high class. Mm hmm. He's he, a lord. It's right in his name. Exactly. And he, he in fact, held, I think, the second oldest Irish hereditary peerage. Um, but he also was right in there. Um, he was the chess and pistol champion of, of Britain, uh, a war veteran. Uh, he, he's quite an extraordinary character mm-hmm. and legitimately a member of the aristocracy. I say legitimately, meaning by birth, mm-hmm. but by accomplishment, he also might be. And it's Fascinating to me that in the world in which he was competing, um, he didn't need to compete for money. Mm-hmm. But that's what's crucial for Mr. Thomas Shap is that he does need to compete for money. Um, anyway, I see this as related to uh, 
the metamorphosis. I so, see it now. Yeah, I'm now that now that you're pointing at these things, it's like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. So, right. Tell, so tell gonna, a little about that story for the people. Well, I, well, I will, but I want to say about Dunsany himself. Um, in terms of his style, the critical truism about this fellow is uh, twofold. One, it is sometimes said, Ursula Le Guin held this opinion, that he invented the modern fantasy short story. Um, I don't know what people mean by that. Obviously, mm. E.T.A. Hoffman, uh, almost 100 years before, was writing what we would now call fantasy short stories, like um, um, Oh, the Sandman, but I haven't read exactly that one. the Sandman. Perfect, thank you. Um, wow. Uh, but the second thing about Dunsany is that, in general, his writing goes from light and charming to dark and brooding, mm-hmm. with World War One as the hinge, and he himself was a veteran. Uh, so this is a 1915 story. Uh, 1911. 1911. 1911. Uh, pardon me. Of course, 1915 in the edition I have read, but 1911 originally. Um, this is his idea of a lighter story mm-hmm. as opposed to things like The Charwoman's Shadow. Um, so this story, a little bit of a precy. Um, the, it, it begins... It's worth quoting it. Absolutely. It was the occupation of Mr. Thomas Schapp to persuade customers that the goods were genuine and of excellent quality, and that as regards the price, their unspoken will was consulted. And in order to carry on this occupation, he went by train very early every morning, some few miles nearer to the city, that's capital C, meaning the commercial center of London, from the suburb in which he slept. This was the use to which he put his life. Now, what happens is that somehow, for some reason, um, he realizes, well, from the moment when he first perceived, not as one reads a thing in a book, but as truths are revealed to one's instinct, the very beastliness of his occupation and of the house that he slept in, its shape, make, and pretenses, and of even the clothes that he wore, from that moment he withdrew his dreams from it, that is to say, from his occupation, his fancies, his ambitions, everything in fact, except that ponderable Mr. Shap that dressed in a frock coat, bought tickets, and handled money, and could in turn be handled by the statistician. The priest's share in Mr. Shap, the share of the poet, never caught the early train to the city at all. So what happens is he begins to have two separate lives, a life of the imagination that he pursues and keeps walled away from his activity as someone in business, We never know exactly what the thing is that he sells, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Uh, We do know that he goes every day by train to the city. Um, We know that he is, in effect, lying to people to make them think that something is genuine, even if it may not be. He's a salesman. He's creating dreams for other people, but his own dreams he keeps entirely separate. And once he realizes the utter beastliness of his occupation 
and starts to have this separate imaginative life with every passing day. He imagines ever more elaborately. He imagines a distant city. He goes to this city. He becomes the king of this city. He begins to visit the other king, the other city states nearby. And the coronation of Mr. Thomas Schaap is the coronation of him as the ruler of this entire imaginative realm that he has conjured up. Somewhere along the line, he stops going to uh, work. Um, his bosses uh, note that he is not making the early train and come to complain to him. And then this is the penultimate paragraph. Slowly with music, when the trumpet sounded, came upward, came to up towards him from we know not where that we is important. Mm-hmm. 120 archbishops, 20 angels, and two archangels uh, with that terrific crown, the diadem of the Thules, a made-up race. Mm -hmm. They knew as they came up to him that promotion awaited them all because of this night's work. Silent, majestic, the king awaited them. Now, let me point out before I read the last paragraph, when the music comes up with trumpets toward him, It is all in his imagination. We know that. Mm -hmm. And when it says we know not um, who these, you know, what's going on, it's important that we recognize that the narrator is assuming that he sides with us in the real world. Mm -hmm. Now, notice also this procession coming up to him from we know not where 120 archbishops. Notice the two, the TW in that, Mm -hmm. 120 archbishops, 20 angels, and two arch or archangels. Everything is doubled Mm -hmm. in the the people going toward him in his imagination because Mr. Thomas Schapp has been doubled. Mm -hmm. And uh, it may be that he's been doubled all along because he has to prove that something is genuine when it in fact is not. Mm -hmm. He's taking, he's retreating from that crass world into one in which everything is real, although it is not. Mm -hmm. The imagination supplanting reality, this doubleness is everywhere. They knew as they came up to him that promotion awaited them all because of this night's work, silent, majestic, the king awaited them. The doctors downstairs were sitting over their supper. The warders softly slipped from room to room, and when in that cozy dormitory of Hanwell, they saw the king still standing erect and royal, his face resolute, they came up to him and addressed him. Go to bed, they said. Pretty bed. So he lay down and soon was fast asleep. The great day was over. So now we suddenly realize Hanwell being a famous uh, institution for the insane, um, that instead of being at his imagined location of Larkar, um, this wonderful oriental um, in the technical meaning of that word in terms of literary criticism, mm-hmm. this oriental um, splendor that he has conjured up and now inhabits, um, he is his body, the other part of the two, is in Hanwell, uh, which by the way, was an institution famous uh, at the end of the 19th century um, for treating the insane gently rather than using punishment or restraint. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a perfect portrait of what we should see. This is uh, not an uncommon way to end the story. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari being probably an early uh, maybe the earliest really famous film that does that. We go through the somnambulist 
um, all of the strange, fantastic things going on. And then at the end, we find that the sleeper is just in an insane asylum. And Dr. Caligari, who controls the somnambulist, is really just the head doctor of the insane asylum. So here we have, again, a doubling, right? The, the wonderful, beautiful world of the imagination that Mr. Thomas Schapp has created and this fortunately gentle place in which his body is entirely imprisoned. Um, it, it's, it's a well-written story. I hope the loveliness uh, delicacy of the prose is clear from the sections we've read so far. Um, but as I say, to me, it looks mostly like the metamorphoses, metamorphosis of Kafka. So, uh, and you said, ah, yes, now you can see it. So mm-hmm. maybe you would like to comment now, Jesse. I'm talking Sure, over. sure. Um, I, I found uh, Dunsany through Lovecraft, who was a massive fan of him. His um, and I think that he became a fan of Dunsany's work because of the resonance he felt for it. Um, Lovecraft has written a number of stories. I mentioned the Silver Key earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's different in shape, but not in message. It's different in uh, outline, but not in tone, and it's different in um, you know in details. But it's 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 the same idea, and that is how can you say this genuine fake stuff that I have to do to keep my body and soul together um, is of value when the true value is elsewhere. And uh, in that story, the main character disappears, um, and uh, that's a good thing. <laughs> Here, Kirani, uh, I was going to say Kiranis, it's not Kiranis, it's Shap, and I love his name. I was thinking, that's an odd name, and then I realized, oh, it's uh, Shape with the, the last letter missing, right? Um, that's only one of the things that it is. Yes, um, but Shea, uh, I remember from a Neil Gaiman uh, book called The Sandman, <laughs> um, uh, that one of the uh, other names for The Sandman uh, was Dream, but also uh, Morpheus and Lord Shaper, um, right. which is all to do with dreams. And obviously, Mr. Thomas Shap doesn't dream only by night. He dreams by day, while others are reading the halfpenny paper and thinking about the stories of the day and the news and the voting. He is uh, dwelling in the lands he sees in his mind and outlining them and detailing them and building them up. It's almost like this is a story of a, a wannabe writer. It's a guy who oh, who works at a, a crappy job where he doesn't um, believe in what he's doing and um, wants to escape from it and does so by creating a happier place. Um, it, it's kind of um, sad in that he's he, the world he builds up is one where he is the king. Um, I think that's kind of pathetic in the most pathetic way right it's just too simple it's like a little kid who wants to be superman and be in control of everything rather than um you know be a dweller in a fantastic land be an adventurer in a fantastic land um overcome difficulties in a fantastic land he is already uh to be coronated and be worshipped it's and that's where the the real pathos for me comes in in this story is that he is 
his dreams, though large, are also very small and very simple. And the fact that he ends up in a place of care for his body is not as uplifting as it could be in in other stories. Um, and it's funny because this is a, not the only time Dunsany has done this sort of same message. There's another story he did called um, The Wonderful Window, which is about a similar man who lives in a garret apartment and um, sells things and does things during the day that he doesn't enjoy doing. And then one day at the market, he finds a window uh, that's come from Baghdad, and he puts it up in his windowless room and starts seeing things through the window. And and it becomes almost like his television. Um, And when he sees that the kingdom that he so beloves uh, is under attack, under assault, he breaks the glass and tries to enter and help the people there. And, of course, that ends the dream. Right. There's this uh, relationship that that Dunsany has with fantasy. Um, and it's always brought... I mean, we did the, the story, I think it's called The Hashish Man, which is about uh, somebody basically coming to Lord Dunsany and saying, I read your story. <laughs> um, uh, and the police are after him. <laughs> Um, as he breaks into this restaurant or wherever it is. Um, and uh, I know it all to be true. And the unnamed writer, character of the story, says, I, I wrote that as a fiction piece. Mm-hmm. And um, so that getting lost in the world of, the, of, of your own or other, another's creation is central, I think, to this, this story. But it is a reaction to something very real for a lot of people, which is bullshit jobs, jobs where you are fulfilling a function. And I think it's it's very important you're pointing out that doubling because it's right there, right in the opening lines. It's it's throughout the story and with that 2-2-2 two, two, two at the end, mm-hmm. right? It's it's exactly right. Let's, I want to uh, just emphasize these two words And uh, when I read this opening again. It was the occupation of Mr. Thomas Shap to persuade customers that the goods were genuine and of an excellent quality, and that as regards the price, their unspoken will was consulted. And in order to carry out this occupation, he went by train very early every morning, some few miles nearer to the city from the suburb in which he slept. I think you're pointing out that the city being capitalized is... um, is uh, you, you were indicating that that was the city of London. I think that that's absolutely possible as a reading. But I also think um, it can make it more generic. And I think that's the whole point of him saying, you know, we don't know what kind of stuff he's selling, but we know they're not genuine. He's not being genuine. The job is not, uh, I mean, the, it, it is genuine cash that he's getting for it. But there's no meaning to it. And it could be any bullshit job. You could be selling T-shirts or you could be selling cars. Whatever it is, it, it's meaningless for him. And when he, that realization comes to him, um, he literally doubles and becomes two men. One who keeps, tries to keep body and soul together. Uh, by selling things and gets worse at the job after a time. 
and another who explores and builds up. It's very interesting. It's not just exploring. It's also building up these lands. Indeed. He is not merely the king. He is something more than that. Go for it. Indeed. When he... I want to pursue two threads here, and I can't do them simultaneously. Um, and then one day he argued, this is early in Thomas Schaap's imagination of what's going on, uh, his inhabitation, his habitation of this imaginary world he's created, the city of Larkar. And then one day he argued, and quite rightly, that all the silk-clad people in its streets, their camels, their wares, that came from Inkustan, the city itself, were all the things of his will, and then he made himself king. I would point out that Inkustan is the land of ink. Mm-hmm. He is a writer, just as you suggested. And this is a story not only about Thomas Shap, but about Lord Dunsany. Mm-hmm. That if you can pull it off, if your imagination is creates something that others can share, you're not an insane asylum. But if they can't share it, then you are outside the world of, of humanity, of society. I'd also point out that these are the silk-clad people in his, his domain. Mm-hmm. Um, shap means shape, as you said. Um, it's a way of sort of strangely misspelling shape. And Kafka's The Metamorphosis is about the change of shape, um, morph mm. its shape in Greek. Um, the, the metamorphosis begins, Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams to discover he had become a gigantic insect. Later in the course of this quite famous novella, we find out that he is a commercial traveler. He scurries about. His company, he has the train schedules memorized. When he stops showing up at work, the, the company sends his manager to come to his home and complain about him not keeping the schedule. People are turned into things by the traveling world. Mm-hmm. The commercial traveler is all we know about the disaffection that creates an urgency for which Gregor Samsa, right, Changes. Gregor means watcher, and Samsa is the complement of nirvana in Indian philosophy. As if nirvana is the breaking out into a timeless eternity in which one merges with the universe, Samsara is the wheel of death and rebirth, death and rebirth. Gregor Samsa is watching this forever wheel of death and rebirth at the end of the metamorphosis, which may refer to his own metamorphosis, but also each of his family members undergoes a change in response to him having turned into a giant insect. Um, he dies. And at that moment, and it's Easter, his sister stretched forth her young legs as if he had died to free her from the world of commerce and commercial traveling and being made a cog into in the, the in the world, that is a 1915 uh, production. Um, Gregor becomes beastly as opposed to Thomas Schaap recognizing the beastliness of what he does and then retreating into his imagination by creating Inkustan, right the the, writ- the written world. 
Kafka, amazingly enough, offers us something like hope, although he may be undercutting it by making it Christian hope since he doesn't believe in or show, suggest any real belief in uh, a greater power making things possible for us. But Dunsany does not give us hope. He just has this poor fellow trapped in the world of his own imagination without any other people. And he kind of deserves it because he started out badly. How did he start out badly? Well, he started out badly because he's a commercial traveler, right? He's trapped by the, by the, the railroad and by the needs of commerce. But the name Shap doesn't just come as a reminder of shape. Shap is a real word in English. Hmm. It's a rare word, but it's a real word. Silkworms produce cocoons. And as you know, the cocoons then get dissolved and the fibers of the cocoons are spun out. And those fibers are what make silk. Mm -hmm. Very strong, very fine, very valuable item. It was the occupation of Mr. Thomas Schapp to persuade customers that the goods were genuine and of excellent quality. Well, the part of the cocoon that is left over after you've taken the fine silk fibers, that's still something there and you can work with it. That remainder of the silkworm's cocoon is known as the Schapp. Hmm. So that's, I don't that's think exactly. Yeah, no, I, that's exactly what I. I come to this podcast for Eric is it's like you you just brought it to a whole other level. Well, thank you, Jesse. <laughs> thank you very much. So when when it says, you know, the silk clad people of Larkar, mm. he's made them genuine, but he started out as just the leftovers. He's hollowed himself out. Exactly. And you notice, by the way, that that the crown that he takes to become a king over all of the realm mm -hmm. is the, the crown that's passed down and has been for a thousand years by the Thules. Oh, yes. well, well, you know, Ultima Thule is the last place in the world. It's the place furthest to the north. It is the last possible place to which humanity can aspire in Greek philosophy. And in Thomas Schapp's imagination, the Thules exist. The Thules have a king, and the Thules will pass on their rights and accoutrements to him so that he can become the ultimate Thule. He can be the ruler of everything, except, of course, you can't. Uh, like, like Wells in stories like The Country of the Blind, when you think that you have some advantage over everyone else, it will turn out that society is stronger than any individual. At least here in Hanwell, society tries to be kind to him. Mm. So he, he lays down and he was soon fast asleep. The great day was over. Was that great day a day in which he was safe? Was it a great day because it was the day of his coronation? Is it the great day because it's the day when the sun shines and now he's off into the night and tomorrow will be another great day? We just don't know. But Thomas Schapp, rather than being the master of all he surveys, is the master only of what he surveys. Mm -hmm. There's a um, – I, I accidentally called him Curanes because there is a uh, – I mentioned this Lovecraft story called Cellophaeus. Um It ends almost 
it's it, it's so strange these parallels because my understanding is that Lovecraft hadn't read uh, Dunsany at this point, but he is he's channeling Dunsany. And now that you pointed out uh, like the metamorphosis and and the fact that he is his problem is caused by his bullshit job uh, is so like there's something of the time period that's really in the air and they picked it up. I just want to read the ending paragraph of Celephaeus, which I think is 1920. Um, it reads like this. And Curanes reigned, uh, reigned thereafter over Uthnargai and all the neighboring regions of dream and held his court alternately in Celephaeus and in the cloud-fashioned Serenian. He reigns there still and will reign happily forever, though below the cliffs at Innsmouth, the channel tides played mockingly with the body of a tramp who had stumbled through the half-deserted village at dawn, played mockingly and cast it about upon the rocks by ivy-colored Trevor ta- Towers, where no- a no- notably fat and especially offensive millionaire brewer enjoys the purchased atmosphere of extinct nobility. That's the end of the story. Wow. This guy, um, Kiranis when he was on earth and lived in England, uh, near Innsmouth, um, was a, f- a from a fallen family, a family that used to own Trevor towers. And in fact, his last name is Trevor. And so, yeah, he, he reigns forever in this forgotten land, but, uh, it is the body of a tramp. Um, he's, uh, it, it, the question at the end of our story here today the coronation of Thomas Schaap is if he's king, why does he need to be crowned? The coronation comes right near the end of the story. When he dies, will he continue to reign or is he delusional? Is the story over? For Lovecraft, it's both. There is that dead body reminding us at the final line, you know, and the rich man sitting in the tower of the old poor man who's now dead here it's it, it, it there's a longing for this escape from this terrible commercial prison yeah, yeah prison of tedium and and both are ap- approaching it through this fantasy world and both know that it's not perhaps the answer it's fascinating to me that if one were to read this story compartmented away from the rest of literature, it would be a, a good and well-written story. Mm-hmm. But there's something about it that, as you say, it fits into its time and it fits into our culture. Mm-hmm. There's something about it that makes us – it has a, it has valences that connect it to – one story in one direction and another story in another direction and another experience in another direction. And it just makes us want to to keep connecting. And so one question the story raises is when we say the story is good, bad or or great or indifferent. What are we actually asking the question about? Mm-hmm. Are we asking it about the story or our reading of the story or the story as we come to understand it in literature or in Western culture. Um, one thing we can say about this rather much more modest story than than Kafka's and rather less well known um, these days than Lovecraft um, is that 
it's definitely also about being a writer, mm-hmm. what it means to create. And, and so there is in that strange way, a bit of hope being offered here mm-hmm. at a time when the world is pretty hopeless mm-hmm. on its way to war and, and death. So as simple as it is, it makes sure there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sff audio.